Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, good news, everyone. Vaccines are here, and today we're answering many of the common questions being asked about them. And stick around after the interview. Katie Love is back with This Week in Science History. Well, nothing about COVID-19 has been easy. But this winter has been especially hard, with a massive surge in cases around the country and the death toll reaching a staggering, heartbreaking height. More than 500,000 lives have been lost, and our communities are hurting. But spring promises to be here soon, literally and figuratively. In the U.S., three COVID-19 vaccines have been authorized for use, distribution is ramping up each day, and I breathe a sigh of relief with each friend or family member that gets their vaccine one by one. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. Many more people need to be vaccinated before it's safe to start hanging out indoors without masks. And it's a long, tricky road to herd immunity. Some don't want the vaccine. Some want it and can't get it. And lots of people have questions about the vaccine. So today on Got Science, we want to focus on what the data says to get you some answers based on the best available scientific information. Our guest is Dr. Jose Romero, Arkansas Health Secretary and Chair of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. He provides scientific guidance and informs the CDC on how vaccines should be prioritized and distributed. I asked Dr. Romero some COVID-19 vaccine FAQs and what he'd say to people who feel they don't need to be vaccinated. We also confront the history of medical racism and discuss how public health officials must make sure vaccine distribution is equitable. Dr. Romero, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate you um, taking time in your busy schedule to, to talk to us about the vaccines that are currently available and in trial. Also to, to maybe debunk some common misconceptions. One thing I wanted to start off with is we've heard a lot about messenger RNA or mRNA vaccines and their ability to be produced quickly and easily. But when I hear RNA, I automatically think DNA, which could cause confusion and it might make folks uneasy. So I was wondering if you could explain for the non-scientist how they work. Sure. The vaccine itself is based on what's called messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA takes, as, exactly as the name implies, takes the message from the DNA outside of the nucleus, which is the center of the cell, and into the cytoplasm. And it, it serves as the a blueprint to make proteins. It is, it's, it's circulating and it, it assembles the protein that you want made. We all have mRNA inside of us, inside of our cells. So uh, this is a molecule that, that is inside our cells, and there's different mRNAs for different proteins. So um, what is done here is that the mRNA encodes or uh, has a blueprint for this, this receptor for uh, the, the COVID. And uh, when you make that protein, then it is expressed and uh, you have the development of immunity against that protein. So it's not the DNA itself. It's not the, the true blueprint of the cell. Uh, it is the messenger from that blueprint. So just to confirm for our listeners, 
none of the the approved vaccines or ones that are that will be approved later can interact in any way with your DNA. That is correct. So, so for that concern, if uh, it, it's very true, this there is no. It's called integration. That is, there is no chance that that mRNA will form part of your DNA. And uh, this is this is not a possibility at, at this time with these types of vaccines. So they're completely safe from that point of view. Excellent. I'm glad we've cleared that up. I have um, a colleague of mine told me that his wife felt pretty bad for about 24 hours after getting her second vaccine. What sorts of side effects can a person expect? And are the side effects related at all to your general health? So the side effects that you can generally expect are um, fever, fatigue, some muscle aches, maybe some chills, some tiredness or sleepiness. Those are the general types of things that you can expect. We tend to see those more frequently um, in younger individuals and older individuals, especially after the second shot. And, And that, in a way, reflects the robustness of the immune system of the individual receiving it. So just as as I get older, I, I tend to forget things, and I uh, our immune system it also gets old and uh, doesn't respond as well. So you don't get as as robust a response. That type of a response actually indicates that your immune system is re- re- responding appropriately. I'd like to run through a just a quick series of safety questions. Are the current vaccines that are available are they safe for children? So at this time, we're, they're being studied. So we have some data already from one of the vaccines that has been looked at in children, adolescents really, down to 12 years of age. And it appears to be safe. The trials that are being done now or will go into place very shortly, looking at younger children will give us better information as to their safety uh, in those younger children. So At this point, we can say that at least one vaccine has been trialed to a certain degree in children 12 years and older. And in some cases, in the case of the uh, Pfizer vaccine, it is approved for 16 years and older. So they actually tested it in some of the older adolescents. But we're learning about that um, as we go forward. And what about pregnant women? Yeah, very good question. These vaccines were not specifically trialed in pregnant women. But we have learned uh, as we vaccinate millions of people, there are going to be people that have that are pregnant or didn't know they were pregnant and then learn they're pregnant after they received their their vaccine. We've learned that it is uh, apparently safe in using in them. We have not, uh, that is the ACIP nor the FDA, have uh, precluded the use of these vaccines in these individuals. It's, it's an informed discussion between uh, the doctor and the person receiving the vaccine, whether they would, should receive it or not. And so that discussion needs to go, needs to be held between uh, the physician and the woman um, that uh, is about to receive the vaccine. They need to weigh the risk of having an infection with COVID while pregnant versus uh, receiving the vaccine. So what might a risk be for a pregnant woman? Well, I think that based on the vaccines that we have now, the risk appears to be negligible, if at all. I mean, there's no, there's nothing in the vaccine itself that would be interactive with the mother or the fetus. So I, I think that the risk is, is theoretical at this point, based on the knowledge that we have for primarily the, the, the mRNA vaccines and at this point. So how about people with diabetes? Yeah. So they should receive the vaccine. 
they are in a high-risk group. They would be considered uh, as one of the candidates for vaccination and clearly should receive their vaccine when their time comes. I want to just talk for a second about the Johnson & Johnson trial. I believe that showed some uncertainty about its effectiveness in those over 65 with diabetes. Is that a concern? So um, I have to say that I've not seen the specifics about the vaccine trial in the Johnson & Johnson. So if there is um, some degree of um, lack of efficacy in that group, then we need to look at that closely. But again, it depends on what the actual outcome is. Um, so I'm not sure if that's talking about vaccine efficacy or if it's talking about hospitalization or uh, death from COVID. So you know, when we look at these vaccines, we look at various aspects of it. That is the ability to, pre to prevent disease, that is mild or moderate disease, the ability to prevent hospitalization and the ability to prevent, prevent death. And so you know, those factors are important. And really looking at the last two, that is the ability to prevent hospitalizations and death, those are very important. And I would need to see that uh, with regard to the, the patients with diabetes. So I'll, I'll have to say that I have not seen that data yet. Okay, fair enough. Um, how about people with allergies? So at this point, um, persons that don't have allergies to any specific component of the vaccines can receive the vaccines. If you have had those um, allergies to one of the components, then it's a contraindication to receive the vaccine. If you have an allergy to a drug that you've received by injection or by IV, uh, then that's a precaution. And that means that instead of being observed for 15 minutes after a shot, you're going to be observed for 30 minutes after a shot to make sure that there isn't, isn't an adverse effect. And I know of people that have allergies to other things and severe allergies um, and have uh, successfully received the vaccine without any problems. We simply monitor them very closely. And this is really, I would imagine if you have any of these specific allergies, you would have discussed that with your doctor most likely. Uh, yes, you should. You know, there, there is, I can say that uh, because of my age, I've received the vaccine already, but the, the questionnaire asks specific questions about allergies. Given the disparities we see in the healthcare system with regard to people of color, our country's history of medical racism and abuse, as well as existing racism within the healthcare system now, how can a person of color place their trust in a COVID-19 vaccine? Yes. So um, as a person of color, you know, I, I am very attuned to this issue. These vaccines have been trialed. Uh, that is in the uh, pre-approval phase, um, have been trialed in high-risk groups and have the pharmaceutical companies have specifically sought out individuals from ethnic and minority groups that are hard hit by this, by this virus. And they've been shown to be effective and safe in these groups. So in uh, African-Americans, in Latinos, in those groups and others, there has been a specific effort to include them in these studies and to show that the vaccine is safe. There is a history, unfortunately, um, of abuses in our system uh, targeted uh, to, to minority populations, and that has led to skepticism and doubt about vaccines. But I can say, and I've stated many, many times, that this vaccine is safe and it has been trialed um, in uh, those groups at highest risk for adverse event. I said that I would take the vaccine when my time came, and I did, because I, I, I mean that, that this is a very safe vaccine. 
On a personal note, can you tell me anything about your family and your community if if there is reluctance? So, um, yes, I, I can speak generally to that. And, and so in my family, there there has not been reluctance to the vaccine uh, that, that I know of at this time. In my community, yes, uh, among Latinos that I know and among African-Americans that are friends and colleagues, I have heard them mount uh, concerns about this vaccine. But you know, I've seen this change over time. When I talked to some of my colleagues early on about this, about the possibility of vaccines, um, and would they accept them? Uh, their comments were, 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 interestingly, not in favor of receiving the vaccine. But as more and more and more information came out about the vaccine and its safety, I've seen them completely change and accept the vaccine and have taken the vaccine. So education is key in this issue. That is, presenting the data in a way that it's easy to understand and presenting it by people that, that are trustworthy in the community to each of these groups can foster uh, confidence in the vaccine. If there's one thing that you wanted to say to people to really convince them that getting the vaccine is a good thing to do, what would you say? You know, I, I think I'd have to say two things. First of all, we, we, we know that the vaccine um, is effective in preventing hospitalizations and death. And we also um, believe that the vaccine will protect you from developing severe disease, even if you get infected. Um, So you're preventing um, the spectrum of disease that can be caused by this virus. And so uh, it gives you a better chance of not having an adverse event or, or a death from this virus. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, please take a minute to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get noticed. And if you're not subscribed, it's super easy and it's free. Just look us up in any podcast app and click on subscribe. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. Once you've been vaccinated, can you still spread the virus? That, that is the question I think we're all asking ourselves right now, and it's a very, very good one. So we know from other vaccines, even the, let me give you an example, the polio vaccine that we uh, initially used would protect us, that is the recipient, from getting polio, but you could still spread polio. So we, we know from history of vaccines that this is a possibility. And so we are currently looking at whether these individuals that receive vaccines and it depends on on the vaccine type because it, it doesn't necessarily apply to all of them if you have protection from one. But we're looking at it, and it seems that these vaccines do limit the ability to transmit the virus even if infected. So let me give you an example. If the vaccine works in, in a perfect way, that is, the recipient, the person that receives the vaccine is protected. And at the same time, if that person comes in contact with the virus later on, they won't develop disease, and that virus won't be able to grow in their nose or their respiratory tract, and they won't be able to spread it. 
that's the perfect vaccine. That prevents the transmission into the community. And that's what we're looking for right now to see if those vaccines, if the current vaccines are able to do that. And some of these vaccines are showing promise uh, in that area. And I suppose it's really almost too soon to tell. As I'm thinking of my next question, you know, can I be reinfected? Well, actually, we're beginning to learn. Um, so we're beginning to learn now whether, whether these vaccines do protect against reinfection. And this is where the, the issue of variants enters. Will the vaccines protect against those variants? And can you be reinfected with a variant, not the same, we would say the parental strain of the COVID virus, but an offspring of that virus? That virus, the offspring, would be a little different than the, than the original and may be able to escape the immunity that you deliver. Uh, that you deliver from the vaccine. So we're looking at that now. That is a possibility. Uh, Our programs here are are designed to identify individuals that um, have been vaccinated and then subsequently develop infection with COVID. We want to look at those isolates, those viruses, sequence them and see how different they are from the original one. So the question is very good. We don't think that you'll get reinfected from the original strain, the strain that you have a vaccine against, but there is a possibility that you may get reinfected from a variant strain. So will this potentially unfold somewhat like the flu vaccine where you have to get a vaccine every year because you've got sort of mutations or variants? That is a definite possibility. We don't know uh, what will happen with uh, COVID-19 or the virus itself is SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus name itself. But if, if SARS-CoV-2 um, becomes endemic, that is that it, it's around and it's always circulating like flu every year and will change, then there is a possibility that we'll need to get yearly or, or maybe every few years a booster or another vaccine in order to cover for it. But we will learn over time. I mean, the, this virus really has, if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that we know nothing and that we're learning as we go forward since this epidemic uh, pandemic has, has begun. What can we expect after becoming vaccinated? Can I shed my mask and re-engage with society right away? What, what will our lives look like in the next six, eight months? So I, I think that it, a lot of that is going to depend on the uptake and the acceptability of the vaccine in, in the public at large. So we've, all, we've talked about herd immunity, and you've heard that before, where you have to have a certain number of individuals in a society or in a, in a closed environment protected in order to prevent a virus from entering into that society or a closed environment and causing disease. If there is uptake of the vaccine by 70 to 90% of the American public, and we develop herd immunity, I believe we will be able to get rid of the mask. Another factor um, in in determining whether we can get rid of it is, of course, you know, does the vaccine prevent transmission? Um, And that will allow us to to shed the mask. I don't think we're we're there yet. Um, You know, it it will depend on how fast we uptake and how fast we get new vaccines out there and supply um, to meet the need. So uh, possibly towards the end of the year, if everything goes well, we can, go, we can go that route of shedding our mask. We've heard Dr. Fauci state that we may even have to get into the mask into next year. So I would be cautious in saying that we're going to get rid of it. And I would advocate continuing to use it whenever you go outside of your house and whenever you're not with your family, your immediate family. So 
if I'm young, healthy, and have no risk factors, and I'm thinking that I don't need to be vaccinated, how could you convince that person to get the vaccination? Sure. There are a, a number of things I would ask them to think about. First of all, they're not immune from having an adverse event, that is, from getting severe COVID disease. Um, you know, we know of a number of very healthy individuals, athletes that have wound up in the hospital and, uh, you know, some have died uh, because, of, because of the COVID. So although your risk is low, you still have a risk. Second of all, the issue of those around you. So you may be fine, but your parents may not be fine and may be in an older group. And you want to protect them by not being able to hopefully not shed the virus and not allowing the virus to propagate in your community. In addition, there is the secondary societal issue. That is that we live in a, in a society where we all interact and our actions affect everyone in that society. And we have, I believe, an obligation to protect others and to take this vaccine in order to prevent others who have a weakened immune system or who are elderly or have other conditions that place them at greater risk for adverse outcome or death. We need to protect them by protecting ourselves. So I, I think those are the things I would, I would try to stress to young people. Uh, it's important that, that they take the vaccine, even if they are perfectly healthy, athletic, and really see themselves not in the risk group. So I know that you worked on the, the framework for an equitable distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. And um, while data is limited, it seems to be showing that, that white people are receiving the vaccine at rates double or triple the rates for Latino and Black people. Do you have any final advice specifically for communities of color about the COVID-19 vaccine? My advice would be that those that... Um, Ha, that our influencers in our societies that that have this knowledge transmitted to everybody in, in in these in our minority populations that they can serve as educators and as uh, promoters of this vaccine. We should also uh, you know encourage from a public health point of view, and, and I'm putting on my public health hat here, is that in an effort to vaccinate as many people as possible, we cannot let inequity. In distribution of the vaccine occur. And so we have to make sure that we put programs in place and that we monitor the ability of the vaccine to enter into these communities and address these problems uh, with confidence that they may have for the vaccine. We here in Arkansas are specifically looking at uptake of the vaccine in different minority groups to make sure that we are targeting those groups with appropriate information and providing the vaccine in areas where they can receive it. So that is up to us as public health individuals. And as public, we should attempt to um, make sure that our elderly right now, because we're primarily dealing with uh, 65 and older, um, that our elderly population who don't have computers, for example, or aren't computer savvy, can have access to these vaccines by helping them um, arrange for appointments, taking them to mass or large uh, vaccination venues. So uh, we can do what we can uh, to help. And uh, as public health officials, we need to keep our eyes on these groups to make sure they're receiving adequate supplies of vaccine. Well, Dr. Romero, thank you uh, first for your tireless effort and leadership, especially in being an advocate for the most vulnerable and underserved people. Um, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
And now it's time for This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This Week in Science History, we're going back just 10 years to March 11, 2011, when a magnitude 9.0 to 9.1 earthquake struck less than 50 miles off the coast of Japan. It was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan and triggered a tsunami that killed more than 15,000 people. It also caused the most severe nuclear accident since the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. And that's going to be our focus today. First, a little background on nuclear power plants like the one at Fukushima. The core of a nuclear reactor is a bundle of metal fuel rods, which are packed with pellets of uranium oxide. The fission of uranium nuclei releases energy that heats water to more than 500 degrees Fahrenheit. This hot water is then used to spin turbines that are connected to generators producing electricity. Keeping the water circulating is critical to not only producing power by spinning those turbines, but also to prevent the core from overheating, which, if uncontrolled, can cause a meltdown. So, back to March 11, 2011. When the earthquake first hit, it caused the automatic shutdown of several of the reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi plant as a built-in safety measure. Upon the loss of normal power supply, emergency diesel generators kicked in to power safety systems needed to keep the water circulating to cool the reactor cores and ensure containment. But then, the tsunami. About 50 minutes after the earthquake, the tsunami, with a wave more than 40 feet high, hit Fukushima. This knocked out the diesel generators, leaving just a bank of batteries which were not able to power the emergency core cooling systems. The Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, tried to get backup generators and batteries to the site, but poor road conditions caused by the tsunami created delays. And even when they did arrive, attempts to connect them to critical water pumps were initially unsuccessful, likely due to other flooding and damage caused by the tsunami. So without the power to keep the water circulating to cool the cores, eventually three of the reactors had meltdowns. When a meltdown like this occurs, what's happening is that the uranium fuel has gotten so hot that it damages itself, the metal in those fuel rods that houses it, and other structures around the core, including the containment. Once that happens, radiation can be released into the environment, which is what happened at Fukushima. One of the key takeaways from this incident is the vulnerability of nuclear reactors to natural disasters. In fact, most U.S. nuclear plants are not adequately protected against the kinds of natural disasters that led to Fukushima, such as earthquakes and floods. And as we know, extreme weather events are becoming more common as a result of climate change, which could lead to even more flooding. As Dr. Ed Lyman, director of our nuclear safety project, has said, quote, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission must require plant owners to upgrade their facilities based on the best current information the most realistic analyses, and the potentially devastating impacts of increased flooding from climate change. Failing to do so will leave some nuclear plants dangerously unprepared and needlessly invite disaster. To hear more from Dr. Lyman on the 10th anniversary of Fukushima, visit act.ucsusa.org slash Fukushima 2021. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, 
the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Jose Romero. This Week in Science History was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, keep wearing your masks, and see you next time.